Hey, Cole, you know how you love crafts? Yes, I do. Well, this week, we're going to love crafts together as I talk about the 2019 film, Color Out of Space. Ooh. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And this week, everybody, well, first of all, thank you for tuning in again. We've been doing this for a while now. So, well, it feels like it. I feel like, I thought we were almost coming up on a year, but it's actually not that close to a year. Episode 35. Is it 35? 34? 34. Maybe 35. No, it's 34. You're right. Okay. This week I'm doing my first cosmic horror movie and first delve into the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who is a very controversial horror author. Why? Because he was racist. Very. But he was from like a long time ago. This is not going to be a segment on Lovecraft. Uh, I may do that in the future, but I just have too much to get through today. But I will do a couple little things about him. He lived a long time ago. He was not a good person in terms of his personal beliefs, but his works are really well-known and also very important to the horror genre. So, so I'm going to talk about him. I mean, he's not profiting off of any of this anymore. He's been done dead. Okay. This movie is a 2019 movie. Sometimes when you look it up, it says 2020 because I guess, like, I think maybe the wide release was 2020, but... It was definitely made in 2019, and I think at least had like a partial release then. It was directed and co-written by Richard Stanley. It is his first film since being fired from the island of Dr. Moreau. That movie, I may do that, but not even necessarily to talk about that movie, which is like a huge train wreck, but to talk about all the drama behind it. Like there were so many people fired from that movie, and things went wrong, and like there's all this craziness about like, Marlon Brando being like a huge diva. It's insane. It's insane. It is like soap opera sitcom type drama that made that movie turn into this like huge clusterfuck. But we're not talking about that right now. So the only reason that it's so Richard Stanley got fired from it. Like a bunch of people got fired from this movie because it was just so fucked up. And this is his first movie since then. And to give you an idea, Island of Dr. Moreau was in 1996. So that movie, I think, broke him mentally. He was like, fuck this. Fuck this industry. I'm going to wait 23 years before I do another one. Yeah. God, isn't that insane how long ago the 90s were? Oh, boy. Anyway, so he did that. Stanley also said that this is going to be the first in a trilogy of Lovecraft adaptations that he's doing, which the next one, I think, is supposed to be an adaptation of the Dunwich horror. But... It's pretty cool. The production value of this is good. Obviously, I'll get into my full-blown review of it. You may sense from my hesitation that I wasn't, like, in love with this movie, but it was okay. Just very quickly on Cosmic Horror, I feel like I could do a lot. We could probably talk, have, like, a huge conversation about it because it's very interesting to me, and I do enjoy it. But for people who aren't 100% familiar or may think they know, Cosmic Horror, this is a definition from the interwebs web it is the quote fear and awe we feel when confronted by phenomena 
beyond our comprehension, whose scope extends beyond the narrow field of human affairs and boasts of cosmic significance. That sounds like the most pretentious definition I've ever fucking read. It's one of the reasons why I tend to avoid cosmic horror, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. There's just too many guys, and you know the guy, like with like the undercut and the really unkept beard that's like, I mean, it's just really deep. You just don't really get it. Yeah, it's to be truthful. So when talking about cosmic horror and specifically talking about Lovecraft, I find there are two types of people that really turn me off to a conversation. The first type are people like that who just are the only people that actually understand cosmic horror or Lovecraft's works and have to tell you about like how you don't get it. And like you might think you like a story, but you don't really because like, do you really know what the story is about? Because it's like really actually deeper than you realize. I hate people like that. And then the other people are the people... When I'm like, oh, yeah, I did this Lovecraft thing. It was really nice. Or like I read this or something. And they're like, do you know how problematic Lovecraft is? Yeah, bitch, I know how problematic Lovecraft is. Okay, I've already talked about that. And then there's me. And I just think Cthulhu is cute. So I have a stuffed purple Cthulhu. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, there's a lot of problematic things in the world. And in that we just deal with them. By cuddling a stuffed purple Cthulhu. <laughs> We have, I mean, to be truthful, we have quite a few Cthulhu things around the house, and I'm not going to get rid of them just because Lovecraft was a racist dick face way back when. He has nothing to do with purple Cthulhu. No, not at all. Anyways, so that's that. I can understand if people, if that, like, people can't get over that, but, like, don't criticize other people for liking this horror. Yeah. It's different than somebody, like... I don't even know if I want to get into this, but it's different than somebody like J.K. Rowling, who is still alive and doubling down on being heinous. Like we don't talk about her, right? But that, that, but do you understand what, like what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I 100 percent get what you're saying. Like if you're still around and like doubling down on how un, uh, like awful of a person you're going to be, then yeah, that's going to affect me a little bit more in terms of how I view your works or how I feel about them. But even still, if people want to try to like you know Harry Potter but distance themselves from Rowling, I'm, I support that. But, like, do not give her money. She doesn't deserve it, and she's got too much now. Yeah. Buy her books used. Yeah. Or pirate them from the internet. Yar. Anyways. So, okay. So, that's what Cosmic Horror is defined as. Really, for, like, normal people who just want, like, normal things is, like, the whole point of Cosmic Horror is it's the universe, right? So, it's, like, the complete fear of the unknown and the fear of what we can't comprehend actually being terrifying. And so, I think, you know, we don't really know what's out in the universe. Technically speaking, probably aliens. But they're probably avoiding us. We're yeah. like the planet equivalent of the really small country town that you hear the banjos in and just drive real fast to get through it. Yeah. I mean, I, ha- I feel like there has to be life somewhere on other planets. And... I would say they have to be more advanced than us because, like, honestly, I feel like we're not doing that great. Anyway. So, that being said, that's cosmic horror. Lovecraftian horror is a subgenre of cosmic horror. Meh. So, okay. (laughs) It emphasizes the cosmic horror of the unknown more than the gore or other elements of shock is what it says. So, I don't 100% get what they're saying other than they're saying that other types of cosmic horror can have gorier aspects to them. And Lovecraft generally 
sort of avoids the gore as the shock and uses more of the unknown as the shock. Which is actually one of my issues with this movie. This movie sort of adopts a little bit more of a hybrid view to it and is quite gory at times, in addition to, like, kind of weird. And I'll talk about the other thing, too. This also is, so this is a, a short story, if people didn't know. The short story is called The Color Out of Space, spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. The movie is Color Out of Space with no the and spelled with an American spelling of color. Why? I don't. No, other than maybe I think there was like another adaptation of this and maybe they wanted to separate themselves from that. So. Are you ready? Also, this one stars Nicolas Cage. Oh, boy. He. Oh, Nick. In this movie, sometimes I'm like, is he acting or is Nicolas Cage just gotten like really old and grumpy and like he just shows up to set and acts like himself and they're like, and scene. I too act old and grumpy. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, of course, near and dear to our hearts here in New Orleans because he owned the LaLaurie Mansion. And doesn't he have like a mausoleum in St. Louis Cemetery number one? That's like a pyramid or some shit? I think so, but people do not like him for that reason. (laughs) Yeah, no. Because he's not from here and he has this like space that those cemeteries, especially that one, um, are usually more for like families that have very deep roots in the city. New Orleans is. A very welcoming city to tourists who want to come and eat food and listen to music and get trashed. It is not welcoming to people who think that they're going to like somehow invade like the deep cultural heritage aspects or make it past anything non-tourist related. Yep. That's a problem. I mean, truthfully, I've lived here for 22 years now. And even I feel it sometimes because when people ask you where you're from, one, I never say I'm from New Orleans. I always say I've lived here for 22 years. Because if you say you're from New Orleans, the very next question, this is no joke and well-known, is where did you go to high school? Yep. And if you say something that's not New Orleans, they are not going to like that very much. Nope. So, anyways, that's New Orleans for you. It's a joy. So, <laughs> okay. I'll get into this movie now. This So, this movie is an adaptation of the short story. It is not 100% true. Full disclosure, I... If I read this short story at some point, I did not remember anything about it, but I did read a synopsis of it, so I do know the differences between the movie and the short story. I'm not going to harp on them, but I will at times point them out, and some of them will be very apparent. Like, for instance, it opens up with the main character. The main character's name is Nathan Gardner. It opens up with his daughter, Lavinia. In the short story, he only has sons, but that's not why this is apparent. Lavinia is like, she's played by Madeline Arthur, who's very good. She's um like a super Wiccan kid, and she has like some purple and pink uh streaks in her hair. So, real quick too, I very often am gonna refer to this purple pink color as like unicorn color because I feel like in modern hipness, although it's dying out a little bit, like unicorn was like a really big thing, and that purpley pinky color was kind of I feel like what people used for unicorn colors, and it is very prevalent. Because, spoiler alert, the color out of space is basically unicorn color. Yay, unicorns. So you're telling me this is a unicorn story. It's a story about unicorns. Awesome. I will be very disappointed if it's anything else. Yes. Unicorns who meld alpacas together into a giant big flesh mound alpaca. Okay, so I'll get to that later. All right, so Lavinia, which everyone calls her Lavinia, by the way, except for her dad. And her dad's nickname for her is Lavinia. And that's not 
okay. Don't, no. Nicknames are supposed to either be cutesy or significantly shorten your name. Yeah. Lavini, no. Laboratory, no. None of that, no. None of it's okay. Just call her Lavinia. Continuing on. So the whole thing starts with, she's like in the circle and she's doing this like, Magic Wiccan. I say she actually does say she's Wiccan in the in the film. That's why I'm saying that. I'm not using that as a broad, all-encompassing term. But she's doing this like angel magical ritual thing. It becomes very apparent that she is essentially trying to do a ritual to help her mother's breast cancer. We learned that her mother recently had a double mastectomy, and I think she's in remission. But Lavinia is like doing this to try to like help her. She also rides a horse everywhere. What? <laughs> Well, so they, they, so they actually live in like on this like farmhouse thing. Oh, okay. And the far, you would, I uh, was gonna get a screenshot of this to show you. Their farmhouse actually looks like this like big Victorian style farmhouse, yes. and it's kind of like a little worn down. It's not yes. like an American farmhouse. It looks really cool. I want it. Yeah, and it's got like cool gardens on the outside, and um, she rides her little horse. They have decided that they're going to be. Like, the the father decided that he's going to make his money in alpaca farming because he thinks they're, like, the animals of the future. I think there is a movement for that because, like, you can milk them and you can, like, use their wool. I I don't really know. They're kind of cute, too. They're cute and they're really soft. Yeah. They are. Okay. So, the farm is right outside of Arkham. There are so many Lovecraft references in this that normally I find those kind of Easter eggs really interesting. They packed in so many in this movie, I actually started to find them a little bit annoying. But, like, not to the point where it ruined the movie, but I was like, yeah, we get it. It's a Lovecraft thing. Move it along, sister. So, any, But anyways, this is outside the town of Arkham. Yeah. So, which is, for people who don't know, a big town that Lovecraft uses. I think most of his town, or most of his towns are also based off of, like, New England towns. And so I think I that's... I think it's Maine? No, well, that's Stephen King. Stephen King is Maine. I think... I think... um. Like, Arkham and stuff, I think, are usually supposed to be somewhere, like, Northeast Coast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know it's Northeast Coast, but I feel like it's a state specifically. Rhode Island, maybe? I can't remember. I probably should have looked it up. If people want, if people want to comment, go for it. Tell us. So. But that, be uh, nice about it. Don't hurt our fifis. <laughs> Look, I'm not an expert. I just, I just like this stuff. Okay. I'm not going to go scene for scene for this, but I will talk about some of the, some of the more interesting parts of it where they're very quickly like the family's having dinner. The family is basically the dad, the mom, whose name is Teresa, the youngest son, his name is Jack, and the older son's name is Benny. So two sons, one daughter, and the mom and dad. They're eating dinner. And honestly, Lavinia, it's weird because, you know, she's like a Wiccan and you think she's going to be kind of hippy-dippy, but honestly, she's kind of a huge bitch because she's complaining. The dad makes cassoulet for dinner, which... I knew what it was because people make cassoulet in New Orleans all the time, but I don't know if that's like not a normal thing, but Lavinia is like, ew, that looks gross. I'd rather have fast food. And she's talking about how like she wants like cheeseburgers from McDonald's. I feel like she's like a really gnarly Wiccan. I don't know. Not that Wiccans don't eat cheeseburgers, but like be nice about it. <laughs> what? Nothing. Anyway, so then... Then she starts bitching about like how alpaca farms are dumb and her dad is like alpacas are the future, which is also kind of a weird thing to say, but like whatever. And he's like, the Mayans used to raise the alpacas and Lavinia is like, yeah, and look what happened to them. They went extinct. Which is like, 
kind of rude. Yikes. Like, you don't know them. She also keeps a copy of the Necronomicon on her bedside table, which, understandably, is another Easter egg for Lovecraft. And I get that because the Necronomicon is literally from Lovecraft, but it's not like a Wiccan book. No. Anyway. mm. Anyway, so then at nighttime, this big pinkish... Oh, unicorn light. I'll just call it unicorn. At nighttime, this unicorn light starts to shine from the outside, and there ends up being this huge bang. And they all run outside, and there's this large meteor rock that's glowing this unicorn color. I'll point out at this point that... I need to step it up. In the short story, the color out of space is basically described as this color... It's a color, but you can't see what color it is. And it's like basically this unrecognizable, indistinguishable color that people can see as a color, but like nobody can actually describe what color it is. And obviously for the film, they had to give it a color because that is something that you can do in books, but not in films. And Lovecraft is notoriously difficult to adapt to film. And stuff like this is why. Yeah. Because also, I mean, as you know, his descriptions of, like, monsters and stuff, too, are always very, like, beyond human comprehension. And when you're reading, it makes sense. You can kind of be like, oh, wow. But you can't show something on film that the description is, like, the eyes can't even comprehend what it is. Yeah. Because it's like, the eyes do need to comprehend it. You're literally showing it to us. So, anyways. So, I'll point that out. I don't fault them for using this pinkish purplish color. It is a little weird. It did kind of make me feel like I was in some sort of, like, weird Hello Kitty warped dimension the whole time. But it is what it is. I was trying to think when I was watching it, like, what would be a better color? And I honestly couldn't really think of anything. Lisa Frank, but make it creepy. <laughs> yeah. Lisa Frank, but with more tentacles. Actually, there are no real tentacles in this one. Well. Well. <laughs> there are flesh mounds. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's my nickname in high school. Anyways. So, okay, so the authorities come out to check on the meteorite, and one of them is this character, Elliot, who is kind of this, like, cute character, and he flirts a little bit with Lavinia. I don't know if that's, like, supposed to be something, but he is a, what does he call himself, a hydrologist? Something about, like, he studies, like, water patterns, like, geo-water patterns. Interesting. Yes. And there's a very uncomfortable scene where he's out there talking to Nathan and Nathan is milking an alpaca. And it is like this like highly sexual, but in a really uncomfortable way where like Nicolas Cage is like milking this alpaca and he's like talking to the kid. And like, like he looks like he's in his like mid to late twenties, but you know, whatever, like a normal looking young kid. And he's like, Nicolas Cage is like, you got, you don't get a lot of milk out. You got to like grab it squeeze and then you just hear it's like it i was like who fucking approved this scene i'm uncomfortable that poor alpaca and then nicholas cage takes it like the raw milk and like offers it to him and he's like fuck no i'm not drinking that and nicholas cage takes a sip and is like mm, fresh like it's fucking weird also don't drink unpasteurized milk it's actually very dangerous there's a big movement of people to drink untreated unpasteurized milk Don't fall for it. It is quite dangerous. I mean, I can't drink pasteurized milk anymore. (laughs) Well, yeah, but still. Anyways, the other character, the only other character in this whole movie, basically, is this character named Ezra. He's like the kind of like kooky guy who lives in the forest. 
He serves very little purpose in this movie, but I'm only going to mention him, and I probably won't mention him again, because he has a cat, and his cat's name is G-Spot, which they do joke is the coolest name ever, because it is a pussy named G-Spot. And all I could think of is, wow, straight people are hilarious. Max says that like he doesn't make a lot of dirty jokes all the time. Also, gentle listener, you probably did not hear because my microphone did not pick it up. But right when Max said it is a pussy named G-Spot, my cat meowed. All right, moving on. Oh, also, Elliot carries around a copy of the book The Willows with him in the movie. The Willows is a novella by English author Algernon Blackwood, originally published as part of a 1907 collection which was called The Listener and Other Stories. Long story short, H.P. Lovecraft considered it to be the finest supernatural tale in all of English literature. Interesting. Yeah, I'm actually unfamiliar. I had no idea what it was. Yeah, no, me neither. I only looked it up because it is. it was very obvious that they made it known to the camera that he had this book called The Willows, and that's why I looked it up. So just another Easter egg. But it is apparently... Um, says it's an example of early modern horror and connected within the literary tradition of, quote, weird fiction. No idea what it's about. I didn't even look. Anyways. Okay, so the meteor, the meteorite thing disappears, and that's when things start to get really weird. There's, like, these weird, strange flowers growing all around the farm. The mother is cooking at one point. She's chopping carrots. And in this really long, drawn-out scene where she's chopping carrots, she kind of goes into this trance. And you just, like, see it coming from a mile away, but she just starts chopping through her fingers after she's done with the carrots. Of course she does. So they're like, that's fucking weird. And then, like, Lavinia goes outside, and Jack, the younger brother, is, like, whistling. And she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, shh, it's talking to me. And she's like, who? And she goes, er, and he goes, the man in the well. And I was like... Fuck, no, you can't just sit around saying shit like that, kid. That's fine. I'll throw you in the well, and y'all can just talk face-to-face now. That's how you end up in an institution. Anyways, for more Easter eggs, you hear the local news, and they're talking about these, like, kind of anomaly-type situations or, like, bad weather in the towns of Arkham, Dunwich, and Kingsport. All of which are Lovecraft towns for people who haven't gotten that. Shock. Yeah. I mean, it's a. it became a lot. I like an Easter egg here now and then, but... I'm like, we know that this is a Lovecraft story, dude. Calm down. I like the occasional Easter egg, but you don't need to give me the whole basket. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, anyway, Elliot comes back and he basically says he found some contamination in the water. They shouldn't drink it, but guess what they do? They keep drinking the water. So, things keep getting real weird. Nathan acts strange. There's, like, this unicorn-colored praying mantis thing that flies around, which is weird. Everyone's attitude takes a real bad turn. They start yelling at each other. Okay. So then they go to check on the alpacas. And the alpacas are not okay. They are actually a big gooey flesh mound of alpacas that just has like six alpaca necks with their heads sticking out that are like bald and kind of mutated. But the bodies are literally melded together alpaca mounds. And they're like not looking very happy. That's... That's so upsetting. Yeah. So then they run out and this giant beam of like unicorn energy flies and it's like kind of like going towards Jack. But Teresa, the mother, like grabs Jack to shield him and they both get hit. And so Teresa and Jack's bodies 
fuse together. And Jack's, like, face is, like, coming out of her back. And, like, it's weird. At the same time, we get a scene spliced in of Lavinia doing some ritual in her room where she grabs a box cutter and starts, like, carving in symbols from the Necronomicon book all over her body. Okay. This movie, like, escalates. It really did. It went from bickering and yelling to giant alpaca blob. Yep. So Nathan takes a shotgun and he kills the alpaca mound. And then he goes, he basically has Teresa and Jack move to the attic because the sunlight is, like, burning this their skin. And by, Teresa, by Teresa and Jack, I mean... That whole situation of them together. Teresa Jack. Teresa Jack. Jerisa. Tack. Yeah. So then Lavinia and Benny are going to leave, but Benny is like, I think our dog fell. Oh, they have a dog. He's like, I think the dog fell down the well. And Lavinia's like, okay. And he's like, I'm going to go down and get it. And she's like, absolutely not. Probably not the best idea. But Benny's like, no, I'm going to go get the dog. So, like, he starts to go down the well. But, of course, like, the meteorite was in the well. It had, like, moved. And then, like, all the unicorn lights start showing. And Teresa's like, um, all right, I'm going to leave. So she leaves. And then Benny basically gets killed. Hmm. Don't go back. I mean, I would go back for a dog if I knew the dog was alive. But first of all, I don't know why he thinks the dog is down the well. The dog is not in the well. It's not even barking. And he can't see it. If I don't have, like, visual confirmation, I'm out of here. Anyways, so then Lavinia is going to leave, but Nathan has gone full crazy and is like, no, grabs her, throws her into the attic where the whole Teresa Jack situation is and says, now feed your mother. And I'm thinking, uh oh, this is going to get real weird real fast. And so the Teresa Jack thing has now like fully morphed and is like walking on like six human limbs. And like, it's like the wife's face, but like, like mutate into some monster tackles Lavinia and is about to like eat her i guess when elliot and the sheriff showed up they hear lavinia screaming run upstairs and shoot the Teresa jack monster in the head well actually i think nathan doesn't i don't know it's weird then they shoot the other head because it has jack's head too and then that monster is killed this is so much (laughs) yeah this is leading up to kind of the climax. Ultimately, some other stuff happens. I won't talk about it, though, because it's not funny. or it, It's actually quite creepy. The There's a part with Ezra that's quite creepy, but I won't get into it. If people want to watch it, they can watch it. Does the climax involve G-Spot, the cat? But the problem is the movie's so long because none of the men can find it. So G-Spot, the cat, interestingly enough, what happens to G-Spot is she, like, morphs into this, like, bald weird monster cat situation and like she becomes a real angry pussy that's all i can say about that yikes yeah it's it's weird i have nothing else to say about that anyways ultimately the climax of the movie is essentially like the big column of unicorn color sort of bursts out of the well and goes into the sky it kind of like disintegrates Lavinia as it does it. Everybody on the farm dies except for Elliot, who had kind of like hid in the cellar of the house. During it, there's this like weird thing happens where he kind of sees the whole family, most of whom should be dead, like sitting on the living room couch and they try to like grab him and he runs into the cellar. The idea is that this thing can bend like time and space around it. And so it's like, it becomes really weird. It disappears into the sky and then, The house is basically, like, 
reduced to ash. And when Elliot gets up, everything around the house in like a very large radius is just white ash. And that's a sen- then there's like a little bit of like a, an epilogue where he's narrating himself. And I actually think there's quotes directly from the short story in it. But he basically just kind of talks about like whatever. It, it's actually okay. I just don't have any quotes from it. So that's how the movie ends. My final thoughts. Because this has been long. As I said before, it's somewhat of a mixed bag. Because there are definitely some moments that were cool. The elements that I liked about it were sort of the the cosmic horror where it was a little bit like... Like there are some genuinely creepy moments where it's very subtle things that happen. But like should not be real. Or should not be going on in like a normal reality. What I didn't necessarily like was when they started to emphasize the gore. Like the alpaca mound. It, to be honest with you, it felt more akin to like horror comedy because of how outrageous it was than it did like a a normal like horror movie, let alone like a cosmic horror movie. Yeah, I could see that. I mean it was it was almost like Lamageddon funny. You know? Oh Lamageddon. Lamageddon was a better movie than this, so I'm gonna call that out right now. So yeah. It just like the ultra gory elements were 100% done for shock factor. Like the whole mom melting into the kid, that does not happen in the short story. In the short story, just real quick, the animals start to become monstrous and they start to like mutate around this rock. But there's not like, it's not like the beams of light like hit people. And actually, what really happens in the short story is like this kind of color starts to like spread and infect, but I think it also like starts to suck the color out of everything else. And when the light in the short story goes back up to the sky, everything is like completely drained of color and the land is blighted, but it's not like ash ash. It's just completely blighted and devoid of color. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of uh, color out of space in a nutshell. It was okay it definitely is creepy and of course because it's a more modern movie the production value is pretty high so it's not like not worth seeing but if you're looking for something that's one of these like really crazy like almost cthulhu-esque where it's just this like i don't even know how to describe it if you're looking for something that's like the subtle horror of cosmic horror this is actually not really it it reminded me a lot of like Annihilation. I actually do think Annihilation is inspired by Color Out of Space by the short story. But Annihilation, I don't know if you've seen that either, but No. Annihilation is a very similar thing where there's this being from space that kind of warps the world around it. And it's done way better than this movie did it. So I'll just point that out. If you've if people have seen Annihilation, you've probably already seen a better sort of take on that story than this one. Yeah. Unless you want to see a lot uh an alpaca flesh mound with six heads. Go see this one. I think this one was streaming on Shutter. So if you want to go see that, you'll have to get Shutter. Anyways, that's my movie. Now tell me what you're gonna talk about. All right, brace yourself, Peaches. Um, this week I will be telling you all about the 1983 asylum horror, The Bad Room, by Christopher Cook Gilmore. And let me tell you, it's a lot. Is it bad? It's so much. So I feel like you can tell a lot just by looking at the cover. It's gaudy 80s horror at its best. Corpse on a stretcher covered by a cloth? Check. Hand holding a syringe? Check. Is the hand gnarled? Check. Top it off with a garish purple color, and it certainly catches the eye. I do like the font on it quite a bit, actually. The bad room. It's like peak 80s horror. 
cover. It's so good. Uh, the blurb is also pretty damn great. The Asylum for the Mentally Insane. He was warned not to go there, but his little boy disappeared into the woods nearby. He had to find him. Now, he's looking from the window of a padded cell as shrieking lunatics lower a child's coffin into the ground. The coffin is jerking. The body is still alive. He is screaming for his son, screaming for them to stop, but his cries are unheard, except by the woman in the attic who always wanted a little boy, and the doctor who will very soon begin the final treatment in the bedroom. Hmm. Sounds pretty pretty good. Sure. Is it? It's not a ghost story, huh? No, it's not a ghost story. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. So here's the thing. The plot itself is whatever. It's fine. The true beauty in this book is the fact that no one, and I mean no one, acts rationally. And there's a part of me that wanted to be like, oh, this is the author making a clever commentary about mental health in general. But honestly, I think it's just a bananas book. I'm down for bananas. It's it's a lot. So our story opens in a manner disconcertingly similar to Daddy's Little Girl. Our main character, Owen, is driving his son, Robin, back to his mother, Robin's mother, after spending some time together. Robin didn't take the divorce well. Yada, yada, yada. Owen bought him a puppy. (laughs) The puppy is annoyingly and persistently relevant as a plot device. Sorry about your mom. Here's a puppy. Basically. I mean, that's basically (laughs) what happened. A boy should have a dog. There's also really fun, awkward questions like, why did you run away, daddy? Robin's like five or something. Like five to eight, maybe. I don't know. Wait, and I'm sorry. When does he run away? He didn't actually run away. It's like, why did you leave us? Why did you run away, daddy? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But speaking of daddy, Owen is my height. 5'7", for those of you playing at home. And he is 220 pounds of ripped muscle. Which is so much. That's disproportionate. And it's all because he builds boats for a living. (laughs) That seems highly suspicious. It's a little weird. Uh, It's actually really annoying because he tells several characters how strong he is. He's very clearly insecure about his height. Mm. He's like, oh, I'm really strong. I can do this. I'm really strong. I can do that. I'm really strong. When I was a kid, I used to bend nails for fun. That's actually a thing he says. 5'7 is really not that short either, honestly. It's the low end of average. (laughs) And you say that as someone who is over six feet tall and does not have trouble reaching the top shelf of a cabinet. Yeah, I... It's actually kind of funny because earlier today I stretched and hit my hand on the top of the door and I was like, what the fuck? Why is this door so low? Like the top, top of the door. I literally have to climb on top of our counters in order to get things off the top shelf. Gentle listener. <laughs> and Max is like, five seven's not that short. But it, 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 but really in the grand scheme of things, it's not that short. No, but it is technically like the, the window of average height for a man. Five seven is the low end. Yeah. I, I like short guys. Five, five and below. Mm. I'm like, Willy Wonka and those Oompa Loompas. Sweet. (laughs) And that's it, folks. This podcast is canceled. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, Owen's a tool. 
he stopped at a roadside bar because he's running late. So he wants to call his ex to give her a heads up. And while he's waiting, because apparently the operator had to track her down and then call back. Was that a thing? Um, no. I mean, like a long time ago, I feel like you called into switchboards and they connected you. But yeah. that's like, this is like what, 80s? 83. That's not how the 80s were. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, while he's waiting, shock, shock, Robin vanishes. Dun, dun, dun. Because he left a child in a car in the parking lot of an isolated bar for an extended period of time. <laughs> you should definitely not do that. But did I, I feel like I did. Did I tell you about when I was driving once from um, Michigan down to New Orleans and it was like pitch black at night and I got lost in Mississippi and had to stop at this like fucking creepy ass diner? Okay, no. Real quick. So, I was, I got lost. I think it was around Vicksburg. I like took a wrong exit and I was like, okay, well, I needed gas. And I was like, well, I got to get gas. And I saw a sign for gas, right? So I followed the sign for gas and the gas station was like abandoned, torn down. So I was like, uh oh. So then there was like a handmade like plywood sign with paint written that said gas with an arrow down a different dark road. <laughs> so I was like, I mean, I needed gas. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go there. So I went down that road and there was this like gas station, convenience store, diner hybrid situation where the pumps were like the old school pumps that had like the rotary type things on them. And so I stopped, I was by myself, by the way, too. I, I'll never forget. I was wearing ripped up jeans and a Hooters shirt. And so I was, I stopped, I uh, you had to prepay, so I couldn't fill up gas. I went into the store because I was going to get an energy drink because it was also getting really late and I was tired and I was, still had a ways to go. The All the drinks in the cooler were like dusty, like nobody ever bought them. So I got an energy drink and then I also wanted to use the restroom. So I bought my, I bought the drink. I was like, I want like X dollars in this pump. And I was like, do you have a restroom? And they're like through the diner. So there was a door from the convenience store, like through the diner. The diner, by the way, was fucking full of people. Like, I mean... It was like, I mean, it must have been close to midnight and it was just like bumping. Like, this is the best diner anyone's ever been to. Everyone is staring at me because I feel like everyone knew each other. I go through the diner. I go into the bathroom. I walk into the bathroom and there on the wall is painted. This is a 100% true story. A giant swastika. And I was like, okay. I think I need to get the absolute fuck out of here. So I used the restroom and I'd already bought my gas. So I left. And then when I got into my car, this is my older car. My car wouldn't start. That's like a fucking horror movie. I was like, well, this is how I go. This is how I die. These like weird people in the diner are going to kill me. This is just what it is. And then I like stopped and I literally had this kind of panic moment. And then I tried it again and it wouldn't start again. And then the third time I tried it, it started and I got the absolute fuck out of there. Anyways, that's my creepy weird remote diner story okay oh boy anyway also owen is like knocking back drinks while he's waiting for the callback like you do when you've got your kid with you father of the year so the bartender's name is dusty Hmm. it's a nickname i can't remember her actual name and she is clearly suffering from mental illness here she keeps yelling at a dog that owen can't see because the bar is so dark and he didn't even realize it was there because it's so quiet turns out there's no dog 
<laughs> uh, Dusty's son, Rupert, shows up later at one point and tells Owen that the dog ran away years ago to the old asylum, got through the fence, and the patients at the asylum killed it. Poor dog. We also learn that Dusty has another child, Ruth, who she vaguely hinted at having committed to the asylum because there was something going on between Ruth and her father. Hmm. Okay. That's inappropriate. Yep. And that brings our total female characters to three. We have the bitchy ex-cliche. We have the mentally unstable bartender. And we have the nymphomaniac who fucked her father. So we're going to also file this book under, Sir, why exactly do you hate women? True. But I've also been all three of those characters. Absolutely not. (laughs) Anyway, Owen goes back out to find his son is missing. Oh my goodness. What is a totally rational beefcake tool to do? Well, because this is a wooded area of New Jersey... There is a watchtower with men stationed to keep an eye out for fires. Hmm. I wonder if that's a thing. It's an area of New Jersey called the Pines. That's apparently like their super podunk area. No, it makes sense. I'm just, I was never aware that that was a thing. Um, Owen charges up the tower and then threatens to kill them if they don't call the police, which seems like (laughs) an overreaction. Why not just tell them to call the police? They probably would. Well, in Owen's defense. I'm skipping over this because it's funnier to skip over it. But now that you've mentioned it, I will go back. They thought that he was drunk from the bar. So when he came up the steps, they just kind of like shoved him down. Okay. But then he like breaks one of their wrists, punches the other one in the face. And is like, I'm going to fucking kill you if you don't call the cops. So It's the manly thing to do. Exactly. It's all that muscle. So the watchman called the cops. And while he's waiting, Owen sees lights going up to the asylum and is just convinced it has something to do with Robin. So when the police chief arrives, he mentions it, and the police chief thinks that Owen is drunk or crazy and wants to arrest him. So in further rational behavior, Owen punches the police chief in the face, takes time to note in his head just how hard he can hit, and then runs into the woods. I'm assuming he never has any consequences from that. No. Of course. Uh, There is a super heavy-handed line where Owen is thinking to himself about how it feels like he's in a twisted human experiment. (laughs) And that, ladies and gentlemen, in my second grade class, is what we call foreshadowing. (laughs) Skipping a bunch of nonsense, Owen eventually gets over the asylum fence with the help of Rupert. And it all escalates from here. Because it wasn't escalating before, comparatively speaking. Once he gets past the vicious guard dogs and the asylum guards, who are actually inmates from the local maximum security prison, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Owen gets inside the building because Rupert somehow knows that a very specific door is always left unlocked. We'll get to why he knows that in a minute. So Owen makes his way... Oh my god, I forgot about this part. Owen makes his way through the building and eventually finds, like, the main room where all the patients are kept in, like, giant bunk beds. And there's an... Everyone's kind of, like, zoned out, and there's an old man he's talking to who seems lucid at first, and then he snaps, and then all of them jump Owen while singing this song about, like, Dance with the Dolly with the hole in her stocking. I don't know. It's just this weird little rhyme thing. 
uh, with the intention of ripping all of his clothes off, which they do, and chopping his junk off. But they don't get that far. Because when the patients tear his pants off, he is saved by the fact that they all stop and stare and gasp at how massive his penis is. Of course it is. No, seriously. Like, I'm not even joking. They yank off his pants and everyone freezes and gasps and stares at his dick. There is not a dick on this earth that has made me do that. And in that time, a guard shows up, at which point Owen rolls under a bed. But how does his dick fit? (laughs) So here, okay, let me pause for a moment. Because this scene left me wondering... Why are all of these main characters in these vintage horror novels written by allegedly straight men described in the same ways that I described characters in the smutty-ass fan fiction that I used to write for myself when I was a teenager? I think it has a lot to do with people write these characters for what they, like, want to be. Like, it's trying to be, what do they call them, like, Mary Sue's, but, like, the toxic masculine version of that? I don't know. Gang? That's what it is. Or it's just like deeply internalized, like homophobia. Well, no. Deeply internalized, like homophobia. What am I saying? Homosexual. Homosexual inclinations. Sorry. I just can't even right now. It's been a really long week. Max gets really distracted when I start talking about giant dicks. Not that much. I eat dicks for breakfast. Anyway. While the guard is in there, there's lots of talk about how the patients need to be good or they won't get to have a funeral, which is weird. There's also a lot of talk about the bad room as well. And it's abundantly clear that shit like lobotomies happen there. Mm. I feel like any asylum that has like the room everyone's scared of, there's always a lobotomy involved. People love to use lobotomies for horror. I kind of get it. It sounds painful and like you know, I mean, nobody wants to be lobotomized. No. Anyway, I was going to say, old-timey medicine was a wild ride. That Do some cocaine about it. It'll be fine. (laughs) Let's just shatter part of your brain. Yeah. Picking out the pace a little bit, this was a very short and quick book, but I actually took an absurd amount of notes because it's nonstop shit happening. Like, the author starts at a 10 and stays at a 10 Mm -hmm. the whole time. So... Owen finds a pajama set under the bed and yanks them on so his giant horse cock isn't flopping around and distracting people. The pajamas are soiled by a patient's explosive diarrhea, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Ugh. Nope. Nope. I'd rather be naked. Literally, like, still wet. I would absolutely just be naked. Well, he has to think of his giant dick. Fucking wrap it around your waist or something, but ugh. Like a belt. Anyway... He leaves the group room, and he eventually finds Ruth. The daughter. Dusty's daughter. Okay. Yes. Ruth lives by herself in the attic. And her backstory is actually a super tragic one of men continuing to abuse and take advantage of her, starting when she was only 11 and her father assaulting her. Hmm. And the author uses this to paint her as this uncontrollable nymphomaniac without really acknowledging the fact that she's the survivor of horrible sexual abuse. So, fuck you, Christopher Cook Gilmore. Hmm. Also, turns out that Rupert knows which door is usually unlocked because he sneaks into the asylum regularly to fuck his sister. 
because our author seemed to think that she needed to be so uncontrollably sexual that she couldn't help but fuck her teenage brother. Oh, man. hmm. So skipping over the unnecessary bits of her warped backstory, because there's like an entire chapter dedicated to like all of the men who used her sexually and how it turned her into this like sexually voracious person. It's so gross. Man, 80s horror authors love to be real inappropriate sometimes. Yep. But other parts of her backstory. So Ruth had a thing with Alvin, who is the owner and doctor at the asylum. And when she was accused of murder, long story, not necessary, he convinced her to plead insanity so she could just come live at the asylum and act as her nurse. Which I don't think is how it works. No. Then the asylum was turned into a prison for the criminally insane, and Alvin started to kind of, like, also go insane. So he decided to start keeping her in the attic. She even has her own private padded cell up there. And Owen actually accidentally locks himself into this cell when Alvin shows up at the attic door. And then Alvin and Ruth leave or whatever. And this is when Owen sees the patients having a fake funeral with a child-sized coffin that is swaying and moving. Alvin and Ruth have left, so Owen is all alone in his locked room, screaming and freaking out. Rupert shows up later and lets out Owen. They run out. They dig up the coffin. It's not Robin. It's the puppy. Yikes. But the puppy's still alive. (laughs) Oh, it's still alive. Okay. Don't forget, the puppy is persistently relevant. (laughs) Guards show up and attack them. Rupert is taken down pretty quickly, but Owen makes it to the gate. And then he's like climbing the gate and one of the guard dogs jumps at him. And so Owen punches the guard dog. But because he's such a strong manly man while hanging from the gate with one arm he punches a full-grown doberman with enough force that it further lifts the doberman into the air and impales it on one of the spikes on top of the gates Mm. Mm -hmm. just remember he's super strong so he goes back for rupert but then alvin sticks him in the neck with a tranquilizer fast forward a bit obviously owen wakes up in the bad room This part is two chapters, but it was actually quite boring. Basically, the doctor is trying to convince Owen that Robin wasn't real ever and that he's been a patient at the asylum for years. And then he starts electroconvulsive therapy, sending shocks to Owen's temples. Then he decides that he needs assistance. So he goes to get Ruth and she does not hold the electrodes to his actual face. So it's not doing anything. And when Alvin is checking the machine because Owen isn't reacting, Owen gives Ruth the signal. The signal is him, and this is a quote, winking with both eyes. (laughs) Or, as other people know it, blinking. Exactly. (laughs) Winking with both eyes. So she grabs an oxygen tank, and she's going to hit him in the back of the head. But he turns at the last second, so she just nails him straight in the face. Mm. It was actually the most satisfying part of the book. And he, like, flies into all the machinery for the um, electroconvulsive therapy. Sparks fly everywhere. And buckle up, because this is all in, like, the last 20 pages, but it's about to go. So Ruth releases Owen from the straps that are holding him down. And while doing that, Alvin escapes and locks them in the bathroom. 
but someone lets them out shortly after. And thank God they do because the machine has caused an electrical fire that is burning the building down. Okay. So Ruth and Owen are on their way to Alvin's like quarters because they think that Robin's going to be there. They find Rupert on the way and they're like, oh, awesome. You're alive. Come with us. So at the quarters, Alvin has like completely snapped and he's like, Ruth, I have a surprise for you. I have a surprise for you. The surprise is Robin. He kidnapped Robin because he's infertile and cannot give her a child conventionally. So what do you do? You kidnap. Robin has escaped, though, and Robin is dashing across the lawn. He, like, escaped through a window with the fucking puppy. Yay. So our heroes go outside with Alvin in tow, and the patients are killing the guards. They kill Alvin by shoving him down a fiery staircase. And then every time he like climbs out and stumbles out, they just push him back down. Okay. Then they decide they're going to go after Robin because they want to kill a child. And after Ruth for, hmm, I'm sure you can figure out what this asshole author decided was going to happen to her. Thankfully it didn't happen. They wanted to fuck her to death. Oh, you look confused. They wanted to like literally rape her until she died. Like, that's what they were talking about doing. Ah. It's garbage. I hate it. So Owen and company jump into Alvin's car because it's in the parking lot, but it won't start. So the inmates start pushing it. (laughs) Okay. Owen steers the car away from the building and towards the gate so that it takes him towards Robin. But then he also, like, steers and arranges it so that he runs over a few inmates in the process while other inmates are pushing him. Okay. Then Owen jumps out and runs to Robin at the like front gate of the property. So he pops Robin onto his back like monkey style Mm -hmm. and starts climbing the gate. Robin falls off because he's not as strong as his father and he loses his grip. So Owen like notices him falling, turns around, drops from the gate and, like, catches him midair and, like, tucks and rolls uh-huh. and pops up. Totally, totally feasible. Where the inmates start to douse him in gasoline. He runs from the patients, but they throw a match at him. But thankfully, there's a pond nearby. So even though he is immediately engulfed in flames, he just jumps in the water and he's fine. Then Rupert pulls up in the now magically working car and they're all safe and they drive back to the bar. And they're at the bar. Waiting at the door of the bar is the puppy. (laughs) Yay, the puppy. In our conclusion, Owen and Robin are about to leave. They're going to take Ruth with them because Owen can save her. She just needs someone who actually cares about her. And then the window is open and the puppy jumps out and runs away. (laughs) And Owen asks if they should go after it. And Robin's like, fuck no. And everyone thinks it's like, ha ha ha, abandoning pets is so funny. (laughs) And then they leave. And our closing scene is Owen is driving down the road. Ruth has fallen asleep. And Owen looks in the rearview mirror in the back seat. And Robin is rocking back and forth and singing the whole like dance with the dolly and the hole with the hole in her stocking song. Okay. The end. Childhood trauma. It's a lot. My final thoughts. Was this book particularly well written? No. Was it enriching in any way? No. Was it at least moderately entertaining? 
Maybe. I'm going to give it three out of five winks with both eyes. It's fun to read if you like train wrecks, but otherwise there's nothing really special about it. Like the train wreck aspect of it was entertaining. Yeah, sounds okay. But also the treatment of Ruth. I don't know. It's starting to bother me. I feel like it's, I don't know. I honestly feel like everything you read from the 80s is like that. Like literally everything. It's so gross. I hate it. I hate it. Anyway, so yeah, that's the bad room. Hmm. So if you were in the bad room, would you get killed? Maybe. Like, I don't know why I would be at the asylum, but it's pretty much a bloodbath in that last 20 pages. Lots of people die. People get run over. People get shoved down fiery stairs, like, sound fire. Like, lots of shit happens. So maybe, I don't know. Would you die in Color Out of Space? The Unicorn Saga. Yeah, almost assuredly. I mean, basically, the the, the alien entity just warps everything around it and eventually kills everything. Elliot only survives because he hides in the cellar. I'm not even sure how believable that is. It's... I will say in the it, so in the short story, just so everyone is aware, there is no like weird mutating of humans and stuff. Everyone, the human characters in the short story just all go mad. They go completely insane, which is a lot more of like a creeping horror factor. But in this movie, yeah, I mean, the unicorn light would literally just kill me. So, well, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Goodreads at Second Did I Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you want at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.